Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Almost every village in Northwest Congo where I grew up had a church, either a Catholic church or Protestant church was located at the edge of the village. Sometimes a large village had both. While the Belgians had colonized the country, they also had turned most people to God. There were a few cults in the area, and it is true that many Congolese held on to cultural rituals and visited the local medicine man or witch doctor at times. But by and large, most people knew of God and attended a church. The average village church was nothing fancy. The structure was made of sticks for a frame and the walls were mudded. If they could afford it, whitewash would be purchased and the exterior painted white. About four to five feet above the floor would be open air windows. The floor was dirt. The roof was stick frame with a grass roof made from long grass with three to four foot long blades. This did help with moderating the heat. Often the seating benches were one or two split logs, round side up, mounted a couple of feet above the ground. For decorations, string would be run from side to side and front to back, creating a string grid of sorts. Flowers or small branches would be hung from the strings that were a few feet above everyone's head. And then when the singing got ramped up, someone would pull another string attached to this giant grid and the whole ceiling area would shake. The front had a pulpit for the preacher and a few chairs would be brought in for special guests to sit in. Also at the front, there would be more benches or chairs for the choir or should I say choirs, plural. The Congolese loved to sing, and it wasn't unusual for a small church to have several choirs, and large churches, especially ones in a town or a city, often had four to five choirs. Men's choirs, women's choirs, mixed choirs, youth choirs, you name it. They loved singing in a choir. And I find it very interesting, and rather sad, that choirs have almost died out in Protestant churches in the U.S. today. So overall, it was a large mud structure with a grass roof that was God's house. Very simple and plain, and this was due to the economics of a distant village from a city. In extreme cases, the church building was some tree branches or logs that were a rough frame and had palm fronts placed overhead to shield the congregation from the sun. People sat on their own stools they brought or split logs on the ground or even on the ground on a mat. Definitely a far cry from the former Crystal Cathedral indeed. But not all churches were this rudimentary. In the cities or small towns, concrete walls and tin roofs were the norm. Often they had wooden benches and sometimes even backs on those benches. The floors would be concrete and the front stage area would be raised several feet for the choir and pastoral staff. Some large churches in the city even had a PA system. But today I'd like to share the experience of attending a small village church in Northwest Congo. Since only a few folks owned watches, it was a local drum that was a system of notifying everyone in the village and even the adjacent village that church was about to start. There would be a large log that had been hollowed out from one side with a slit several inches wide. The drummer would beat two large sticks on the hollowed out log. And based on the rhythm and where the sticks hit the drum, it would change the tone that was emitted from the drum and it became a message of calling people to congregate. 
This would be sent through the air and into the forest for miles. This is what it sounds like. Every 10 minutes or so, the drummer would go beat the drums, changing the rhythm, messaging everyone that could hear that church was starting. As I often went to the village with my dad as a young boy, I learned the beat to use on a large log drum that was for calling everybody to come. What is also interesting is that there were different drum beats for the Catholic church and the Protestant church, even in the same village. If church was to start at nine o'clock, people started showing up around nine, but often until there was a critical mass of people, the service wouldn't start. A 9.30 or 9.45 start wasn't unusual. Nobody's stressed, you just rolled with it. It's not like there was a football game on TV to rush home for. People respected coming to church and how they dressed. The most only had several changes of clothes to their name, They'd wash their clothes, iron them with a charcoal iron, and literally put on their Sunday best clothes to attend church. I always appreciated that, and to this day, I struggle with people that come to church in shorts, flip-flops, and a t-shirt. I know that God is judging the heart, not the clothes, but it is God's house after all. So I followed the Congolese example, and I always wear long pants and a nice shirt, even in California, where many come dressed like they're heading to a friend's barbecue or a pool party. The women dress in colorful cloths and often wear bright head scarves. They also will spend hours braiding their hair. This is their once per week time to get all dressed up. Seating is unique, though in the past 30 years, it's been changing. In the typical village setting, women sit on one side of the sanctuary and men on the other. This division isn't quite as pronounced in towns or villages where things are more modern. But even as recently as seven years ago in a huge city church I attended, Generally, the women were on the left side and men on the right, though some couples did sit together. A song was usually the first on the agenda of a church service once it got underway. In the 1970s, there was one standard songbook that was printed, but it only had the words and not the musical notes like a typical hymnal we're used to. Since most Congolese learned things by rote, they'd memorize the words and knew the song based on the song number listed in the songbook. So for me, when you say song number 233, it's Translated, that means empty-handed I go. I'll never forget it because it was the same song every Sunday, and you guessed it, during the offering period. After a few congregational songs, the choir or choirs would start. This could be a 30 to 45 minute affair as the songs had numerous verses, and often several choirs would sing several songs each in their repertoire. Congregants would often sing along in the sanctuary, and nobody seemed to mind the length of this segment of the service. Often, drums made from wood and animal skin would accompany the singing. Maybe someone had a homemade guitar. Unlike here in the U.S., where most churches have a full-on worship band with guitars, keyboards, synthesizers, and other musical instruments, the choir sang a cappella but had incredible harmony. Here's an example of a ladies' choir. I 
I've asked James Edstrom, currently a high school teacher in Chicago, who was born in Congo and was a childhood friend of mine, to share his thoughts and memories of attending a village church in Congo. Here are some of James' memories on the choirs. Oftentimes there would be more than one choir. It might be all male, it might be all female. I do remember that they would sometimes have instruments with them, maybe a homemade guitar. When there were multiple choirs, not only was that uh, something I remember, but oftentimes the choir would not face the congregation. Sometimes they would be in a circle so that uh, their backs even would be uh, to the congregation. There were also many verses that would be um, in the song. So those are, those are a couple things that I remember. As I grew up through adulthood, it was refreshing to see the church music change from being very static as it had come from America or Europe by missionaries to having some original music and lyrics being written. I'm sure that now many folks wouldn't know song number 233 if I called it out in a service. This is actually a good thing as they are now writing their own music, having their own style, meaning and music expression in their church setting. The announcements were a big deal. Often 15 or 20 announcements would be read. Since this was the weekly gathering for the village, not only were church-related updates shared, but general village news too. So when there was a woman's meeting scheduled or what time and where choir group A was rehearsing, it was announced. You'd also hear of someone finding some personal property at the local stream and to contact so-and-so if you lost that item while bathing last Thursday, for example. One of the key items of the announcements was the welcoming of out-of-town visitors. All would be required to stand up, announced who they were and where they were from. The guests would then share their greeting from their home village to the congregation. This was always met with appreciation and joy. Often, once all the visitors had given their greeting, the entire congregation would then stand to gesture their greeting. The thing about the services in Congo is there was no bulletin. So as a congregant, you didn't necessarily know what was coming next in a service. And I remember specifically the doxology, and I also remember specifically a pastor might say, oh, I noticed that we have some guests in the congregation. And so attention was called to them. They were often asked, where were they from? So they would get up and they would say, you know, I'm so-and-so from this other village. And that happened every service that I remember. And then the pastor would say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to say hello three times to the people that are here, and we're going to say thank you to God three times for them coming. So we would all do in unison. We would all say, mbote, mbote, mbote. And then you would raise your hand uh, pointing up to the sky, and you'd say, merci, merci, merci. And as I remember, that happened in every service in Congo. The word mbote means welcome. The word merci means thanks. So essentially, they were thanking the visitors for coming three times and thanking God three times for bringing them to their congregation. This was a big deal and an important part of the service and culture. It was very honoring to recognize visitors. Another interesting aspect of a village church was the animal visitors that came into the sanctuary during the service. I should mention that often during the service, chickens would walk in and out. Everyone ignored them. 
What wasn't ignored was when someone moved their foot and inadvertently hit a dog that was under the bench. It would yelp and people would start to yell at it or try to shoo it out of the building. I've asked John Aiken, a former missionary pastor to Congo during the 1970s and now retired in Colorado, to give his perspective on some of these unwelcome guests. I think the, the biggest difficulty that I ever saw in churches were dogs. And they didn't always have a gate in the church. And so sometimes dogs would come or goats and they would get into the church and if there was another dog there, they sometimes would fight with it. So you would have a dog fight in church. Very uncomfortable, but something that you're going, hey, let's get this stopped. But the Africans were pretty calm and cool about it. They, I mean, they didn't like it. They didn't, they mean, they didn't allow animals to come in ordinarily, but they did sometimes. And if you've ever been around goats, goats are the most curious creatures that there are so that they would just get into whatever they could. All in a typical Congolese village church service. Sermons were epic in several ways. They were generally animated and dynamic with high energy and long. Often congregants would hoot, cheer, give an amen, or other audible response to what the pastor was preaching as the energy started to go up. This in turn convinced the pastor that the congregation was into his sermon, further firing him up and thus would continue on with his sermon. My experience in the U.S. is that 35 to 45 minutes is the sermon allocation of a typical church service. In Congo, the pastors barely threw his introduction to the passage after 30 minutes. Just kidding, but an hour and a half to two hour sermon was not unusual. The longest service that I remember was the dedication of the Bokonzo Church in Gemina. It was a church that my father had designed and helped supervise the building of. It actually was a large church. It seated about 1,200 people. And so there were multiple choirs. There were multiple speakers. Even the band from Ubach came to play. And that was the longest service I remember. James continues. If it was in Lingala, then I could follow along with it. The cadence might be difficult to follow. Some of the words I, I may not have remembered. It, it was difficult in my younger years, especially. I remember being there in fifth grade. I really didn't know Lingala well at all. And then as I got older, I had a better command for the Lingala language. When we used to go to Boyas Balanca, that was, as I remember, that was in Baca. And my mom had learned Baca when she first went to Congo in the early 50s. And so she enjoyed going to services that were in Baca. And if the, if the service was in Baca and the sermon was in Baca, I really couldn't follow it at all. The other thing that I remember is if people from the, the States would come to visit, they would speak in English and then it would be translated into Lingala. So if that was the case, then I wouldn't necessarily understand the Lingala or maybe even the Baca translation, but I could follow it along in, uh, with the English. By the time the sermon ended, you're stiff, tired, hot, thirsty, and often had a sore butt from sitting on a couple of round logs. I'd often lean forward and rest my head on my hands for a change of position to help generate some airspace for cooling purposes and take a load off my rear end. For perspective, John describes the plush pews we sat on. 
the benches were could be of all different kinds. Sometimes they would just drive some bamboo stakes down into the ground, and those uh, stakes then would have bamboo poles attached to them. They would cut a V in them and put the bamboo there. So you might be sitting on just one or two sticks of bamboo, two, two and a half inches in diameter, but very uncomfortable if you sat on it for very long. People would bring sometimes, if it was a village church, they would bring their beds, which were called kalikpas, and those were made out of bamboo. They would be about two and a half feet in width and maybe five feet long, and they would just, people would carry them to where they wanted to sit down, and there would be maybe a half a dozen people sitting on that uh, bamboo kalikpa. If you're hoping to see the finish line of the service with the sermon ending, think again. There's still more. After the sermon, it was time for the offerings. Yes, you heard me correctly. That is offering in the plural sense. First, there was a general offering. There were several methodologies of collecting. The first general offering tended to be usually the passing of a plate or a basket row by row. Or they would have a basket placed at the front of the church for people to go up and put into. Then if there was a special project the church was trying to fund, they'd set up a contest between the men and the women. First, while the choir is singing, the men would leave their spots and walk up to the front by the pulpit and put their money in the basket. When all the men had made their trip to the front, they'd remove that basket and put another one up there for the women. They'd move slowly to the front, filing up, often dancing with the musical beat, and place their offerings into the women's basket. Then, when all the women had given, they'd do a quick count and make an announcement of which had contributed more. I've even seen a fourth offering so the losing gender could try to match or supersede the other. In 2013, at a church service I attended, the offering session alone was close to 40 minutes long, as that's how long it took for everyone to get up out of their spot, file to the front, make their contribution, and then sit back down. The offering time on the agenda wasn't relegated to a specific time. John Aiken explains. Uh, well, the offerings were always kind of a lot of fun. They were kind of a contest between the men and the women to some extent. The offerings in an African church were not basically money. They were goods. They were food. They were corn. There would be rice. There would be flour made from manioc. There were monetary offerings as well. But the monetary offerings probably were not as extensive as the offerings in kind. James also shares his memories of people bringing gifts during the service. Many things that were brought during the service, often it was at the beginning, but it could be during the service, a woman would walk in with a uh, big pan on her head. It might be full of ground corn. It might be ears of corn. It could have been manioc. It also could have been a live chicken that was brought to the front and put up in the front of the congregation. And I believe my mother said that one time she counted 27 baskets of corn in the front. But this, these were offerings where people may or may not have had actual currency, but they were able to bring gifts to the pastor, pastor's family, or share it among the congregation. But those things were brought instead of using currency. So as you heard, it was common for a lady to walk up the main aisle in any part of the service, announcements, choir, 
sermon, etc., and bring a huge pan of fruit or vegetables balancing on her head. Sometimes there'd be a chicken or two all tied up in her pan. Someone from the congregation would get up to help the lady remove this huge pan and set it down at the front by the pulpit. Then she'd walk back out. No fanfare, no acknowledgement. This was her gift, her offering from her garden. I always thought this was terrific as the Bible calls for us to offer up our first fruits. And in many cases, these ladies had toiled in the garden and were offering up precious fruits and vegetables, ergo, sustenance for their family. The food items would then typically be consumed by the pastor and his family or sold to help fund the church budget. As I'm sure you can imagine, due to economic conditions, most folks in the village setting were living hand to mouth with few job opportunities except to harvest what grew in their garden to sell. So it was hard to raise funds for paying the salaries of the pastoral staff, much less for a capital improvement project at the church. I will deviate slightly to share a firsthand story of how tough it is for most church congregations. In 2013, while visiting my hometown in Gimena, Democratic Republic of Congo, I visited a childhood friend who was now a pastor of a church in one of the city parishes. They'd started a building campaign five years earlier and had gotten the expansion perimeter walls up, but didn't have the funds for the wood beams for the roofing as the next phase. The roof was literally caving in due to age and termite damage, and it was truly a safety hazard. I got convicted seeing and hearing their plight as the rally cry was to ask each family to sacrifice and bring one piece of lumber so that they could erect the roof trusses that year. I thought to myself how crazy this was that after five years, they only had the exterior block walls up and it'd be another year just for the roof beams and who knows how long for the roofing materials. Thus, I organized a bike ride fundraiser to help this church get their project completed. I can say I saw God's hand moving people as I shared the story of this church and the need they had for a roof. 52 different people donated the funds to finish the roof, and we even added benches and a cement floor. And in July 2017, there was a formal ribbon cutting and a dedication ceremony with almost 4,000 people in attendance to celebrate the completion of the church. If you're curious to get the whole story, you can go to Facebook and search for Congo Roof Fund 100 Mile Ride as it details the progress of the project from start to finish. My pastor friend has been relocated to another parish, and believe it or not, in 2020, a huge windstorm ripped the entire roof off of that church building. But back to the local church village service. James further describes the experience of being in a mud church building. So when dad was uh, trained as an architect, he actually went to work for Boeing Aircraft in Seattle, Washington, and he got a, it was a covenant companion back then. And this was probably late forties. And they said that they needed an architect in Congo. So he went to Congo and part of his training in designing buildings in the tropics was said, one of the keys is to have breezes at body level. And so all of the houses that dad designed and the churches that he designed, he really focused on having the walls may be shorter and the windows being taller so that if there was a breeze during the day, that breeze could easily flow through the building, whether it was a house, whether it was a hospital, whether it was a chapel or whether, whether it was a, a large church. The church at Boconzo was in the shape of a T, but most of the walls were ventilation block. So it really allowed for uh, 
really what he had said, these breezes at body level. Unlike what we are used to, being enclosed and isolated from what's going on outside. So if it was raining, you could hear the rain. When you're in the service, you could just look out towards the other parts of the village, people walking on the road, trucks going by. So it was really a very rich experience for listening and also for hearing different sounds. James further describes the experience. I find that the thing that I remember the most was how close we were to nature on a regular basis when we were in Congo. And I think it was even more evident when we were at a church service because you would have maybe a steady breeze blowing through the church or you could hear sounds of the village where the church was located. Uh, You might have children walking in and out of the service. You might have animals coming in and out of the service. It could be a dog, could be a chicken that had been given to the, uh, the pastor for their offering. After the offering, there'd be another general song and possibly a song by the choir, followed by the closing prayer and a benediction to end the service. You may ask why the services are so long. Here's one theory. I think of the services that we have in the United States or really any other country that we are so tied to the clock. We want things to start on time. We want things to end on time. In Congo, there may not have been any special events after church. Here, you might be distracted by thinking uh, your favorite sports team is going to play in the afternoon, or you have another engagement in the afternoon. Whereas uh, in Congo, I think the service was an event of the week. It was an event for the whole community. And so if it lasted long, that was fine. It wasn't Uh, something that it had to be done for other things to come up afterwards. It was an event that people could participate in. And in some sense, it was maybe even a, a form of entertainment that with either a no TVs, maybe a radio in certain parts of the village. But like I said, it was, it was an event that, uh, that people could, could participate in really at, at any level. The Congolese church experience wouldn't be complete without sharing what is called a Yenga Monene. This is translated from Lingala to be a big Sunday. These gatherings were usually a weekend event and were very large. Special speakers, choirs from all over, and people wanting to be part of this big Sunday event would descend to a certain village for a weekend. The local villagers hosting the event would build structures and cut palm fronds to shield the visitors from the sun, creating an overflow section to their little church. John Aiken attended numerous Big Sunday events and explains the event as follows. Big Sundays were a type of large get-together that were held in one of the regions of the church. There was the Kala region, there was the Gemina region, there were other regions that were part of the Evangelical Free Church. And this gave the churches the opportunity to meet together on a quarterly basis. They usually had a big Sunday once every three months. What was included in a big Sunday? Included 
gathering the Christians from the various villages that were in that region so that they could participate in singing, in worship. And then it also included the examinations for baptism. It included the examinations for church membership. It gave them a chance to listen to preachers. So that was the purpose of the big Sundays. Generally speaking, they were held during an entire weekend with people traveling on Friday or on Saturday, arriving on Saturday. And they would travel anywhere up to 30, 35 kilometers to come to these big Sundays. They would bring mostly their own food. The venue for the big Sunday did not provide the food. The people would bring it with them. They brought their own beds. They slept in the church or they slept outside or they slept at people's houses. But they didn't, there was not a, a big central meeting place where they could all sleep. How long did they last? Well, the meetings would go on from about mid-morning into the early evening, maybe the late afternoon. They did not have lights in the meeting places, so evening meetings were really not part of what went on unless it was in some kind of a church building that had electricity and there were very, very few of those in the Congo or in the Ubangi. How many, you might ask, attended? I would say anywhere between two and 400 people. Ironically, some of my fondest memories of my youth revolve around the village church experience. The true culture of the people comes out through the awesome singing in the choirs, the dynamic preaching from the pulpit, the giving hearts of people through their offerings when they have almost nothing, yet they give what they have, and also listening to the announcements to truly understand the village life and culture. Here in the U.S., we have bands, sound systems, soft seats, air conditioning, 40-minute sermons, and a total service length of an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half. Here in Southern California is a Congolese church that I visit from time to time when I need to get my Congo fix. There's about 100 people in attendance. They preach in French and translate into Lingala for the benefit of the women and have a women's choir that is incredible in their singing. I love attending these services, even if they last three hours. Why, you may ask? It's because I'm in my element, and it's part of what shaped me as a child. And since I understand both French and Lingala, I get to hear the sermon twice, so maybe it'll do me some good. I want to thank James Edstrom and John Aiken for taking time to share their personal experiences of participating in a typical village church service. I hope you appreciate the kid's perspective, as well as that from an adult and how they viewed the church village experience differently. I hope this episode gives you a perspective of a typical church and church service in a village in Congo. It's a reminder that God's house can be a multi-million dollar cathedral or a simple structure made with sticks, mud walls, and a grass roof. God can be worshiped in either venue, and I know the hearts of the Congolese want to do it in their own way, as evidenced by their time commitment, music commitment, and hearing God's word from the pastor. If you ever get a chance to attend a church service in a village church, I urge you to attend. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid your humble host. Yeah,
Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well. <laughs>